As we open God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series together through uh, the first four psalms, and we've come to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. I'll read the whole psalm and we'll consider it together. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Well, Psalm 3, in a lot of ways, is really the first psalm uh, in the Psalter after the introduction. Uh, Psalms 1 and 2 really form an introduction to the whole Psalter. Psalm 1 is intensely individual, telling us the wisdom we need to walk properly before the Lord, the path that leads to blessedness if we follow it, um, and the path of wickedness to avoid. It's very intensely personal in that sense. Psalm 2 is global. It talks about the whole history of the world, what the world is coming to, the enthronement of the king, the establishment of his kingdom, and the requirement that all people submit to his rule. That sets up the the introduction to the Psalter. So in many ways, we could say that this is the first psalm in book one, the first psalm that begins to tell the story of the Psalter. Um, And if that's the case, the psalms begin in a very interesting place. Uh, This psalm has a title that ascribes to it a particular time in the life of the king. Um, And so we'll see that in this entire book of psalms, uh, we could say that the theme of book one, the first 41 psalms of the Psalter, is the king's confidence in God's care. David's confidence comes out very clearly in this psalm, despite the difficulties that he's facing. Uh, This is a psalm that many people have noted is a a royal psalm of protection, that God is a protector of his king. Um, And because this psalm reflects particularly on God's uh, protection in the morning, uh, David talks about lying down and sleeping and waking again, for the Lord sustained him. This is a psalm of particular protection at a time in David's life that became generally used for morning worship. Uh, Because we lay down and we wake up and we say, God is still sustaining me and God is still protecting me. And so this became a psalm for the morning. 
And in that sense, it's a wonderful thing to think about how the psalms begin with an individual psalm, with a global psalm, and then with a psalm for the morning. And I think we'll see in Psalm 4 a psalm for the evening. Um, Those two psalms are very closely related. Um, So David is thinking about this in the light of a particular event in his life. And David seeks the Lord as Absalom seeks his life. Um, And we can look at how David seeks the Lord and see how the church can seek the Lord in times of crisis and trouble. So how does David seek the Lord in the midst of his son's rebellion? Well, he seeks him in serious distress, in certain hope, and in confident prayer. And that's how we want to think about this psalm together. That that David seeks the Lord in the midst of this rebellion, in serious distress, in certain hope, and in confident prayer. Um, As we noted from the the label that's given to this psalm at the beginning, um, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This psalm calls to our minds a particular event in the life of David. Uh, You can read about Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel 15 through 19. I encourage you to read it. It's a very exciting story. Um, It's a very interesting story for lots of reasons. Uh, It's a very sad story of Absalom's rebellion against David, his father, uh, trying to steal the kingdom from his father uh, to whom God had given it. Um, it's It's a very interesting story that spans those chapters. Um, And this psalm not just recalls that story in general, but calls our minds to a particular facet of that story. Um, Particularly, the psalm calls us to think about David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Um, Just to give you a spoiler alert, the the rebellion does not succeed. Um, Absalom does not succeed in putting David off of his throne. The Lord fights and intervenes for David in a powerful and marvelous way. Um, But this this psalm calls to mind when David was running for his life, when David was fleeing. Maybe one of the most poignant moments in that flight from Absalom is recorded in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, where we read, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. This psalm calls a particular time in that rebellion, that that flight of David fleeing from before his son. And it calls to our minds particular features of that particular event. As David is reflecting on his situation, it's captured for us in these first two verses of the psalm. As David feels like his enemies are many, that's how the call comes to God. O Lord, how many are my foes? Throughout the story of the rebellion, one of the sad things will be the the recording of the story will often say, all the people of Israel were after David. Or the army of Israel was after him. Um, it's, It's not just a few people who participated in this rebellion. It seems like the whole country is set against him, that many people are against David and for his son. His son waged a very effective political campaign before his takeover to try to get people on his side. And David feels that, that his enemies are many and his enemies are multiplying. Right? How many are my foes? How many are rising against me? 
It's not just that there's a lot of them. There seems to be a rising tide of them. Um, and, And some of them are particularly cruel as David's enemies are revealed in the midst of this rebellion. People he thought were close to him. Um, word comes to him that Mephibosheth, David, uh, Jonathan's son, who he spared, uh, word comes to him that he's turned against David. It turns out to be a lie, but David doesn't know that at the time. Um, he finds out that there are people that go over to Absalom from his. Maybe the, the cruelest stroke of all is Ahithophel. We all might say, of course, Ahithophel. Who doesn't, who doesn't remember him? Um, just in case you don't remember him, Ahithophel was David's counselor. Um, and he was well regarded as about the best counselor you could have. Uh, we read in the account of the rebellion, now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Because when Absalom comes, Ahithophel goes over to Absalom. And so David's not just abandoned by other supporters who he thought might support him, but he's abandoned by one of the men who's closest to him. I think it's Ahithophel he's talking about in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, where David says, It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him, but it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. And that friend turns against him, goes over to his enemy. And now this wonderful counselor is giving counsel to the enemy. It's not just that David is feeling surrounded by enemies. He's feeling that the tide is rising against him. His enemies are many, his enemies are multiplying, and his enemies are malevolent. Um, They say something that would have been particularly cruel in David's ears. Right? Many are saying of my soul in verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. Right? That, That really reveals the hope of David's enemies. There is no salvation, there is no victory. For him from God. If God grants the victory, God is not for him. That's what they're saying. That expresses their real hope. Um, as David was fleeing from before Absalom, a man named Shimei from, from Saul's household came out and cursed David while he fled. Uh, cursed him and said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And David's lieutenant, standing there, one of his mighty men says, let me cut this fool's head off for saying that to you. Nobody talks to the king that way. And David tells him not to because he said, maybe the Lord has called him to curse me. I think it reveals in that moment, this is not just the hope of the enemies of David. This is David's fear. That this is all coming upon him because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. That this is really a reward for his sin. 
God did say to him and warned him in 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 11, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. It's not just the hope of his enemies, right? This is the fear of his soul. It's his fear that God might turn against him. Isn't that what we fear when things, when things start to go against us and we feel pressed in on by the things of this world? Maybe we're not surrounded by literal enemies seeking to take our lives, but we can be faced with much difficulty and we can feel like the tide is rising. And one of the worst things we can feel in those moments is that this is a judgment against us because of our sin. Even if our theology is such that we know that's not true, that our sins have been punished in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can still feel that way. We can still wrestle with it even if we know it's not true. Is, the Lord, is it true? Has the Lord abandoned me? Is there no salvation for my soul from my God? This is a serious distress that David is going through. This is the kind of serious distress that God's people can face. This is the kind of serious distress that our Lord Jesus Christ faced, particularly at his crucifixion. When his enemies were many, and they were rising against him, and his faithful friends left him, and one of his disciples betrayed him, and he found himself crucified and alone, but for the people around him who mocked him and reviled him. And how could we summarize what they said to him? There is no salvation for his soul from God. Think of how Matthew describes that scene in Matthew 27, 39 to 44. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus knows what it is to be in serious distress. Serving God doesn't mean we won't experience serious distress in our lives. And the psalm is teaching us a principle that's well established in the Bible. As one commentator said, what, what is always the danger of God's people when the enemies are many and when they're rising and when we begin to fear, we so fix our eyes on the enemies that they become gigantic in our minds and hearts. Boys and girls, remember, maybe you remember the story of the spies coming back, having spied out the land of Canaan. They said, we can't possibly fight those guys. They're all giants and their cities go all the way up to the heavens. Well, they weren't all giants and their cities didn't go all the way up to heaven. Why did they think that way? Because all they were looking at was their enemies. And they said, they're gigantic. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. The Bible teaches us that principle. If we fix our eyes too long on the enemies, they look huge. 
It wasn't until Caleb and Joshua came along and said, they might be huge, but God is bigger. Even if they were giants in their cities raised up to the heavens, God could cut them down. Don't be afraid. And that's what David does in the midst of his serious distress. He doesn't despair or collapse in on himself. He looks out to God. And he looks out to God and that fills him not with despair, but with certain hope. That's the wonderful turn the psalm takes in verse 3. David has surveyed his enemies. Yes, they're many. They're, they're, They're multiplying. They're malevolent. But you, O Lord. That's an emphatic turn in the psalm. But you, O Lord. You are a shield around me. My glory and the lifter of my head. What does he do? He looks around him and says, yeah, the enemies are all around me, but so is the Lord as a shield. In the midst of all of this difficulty, David knows that the Lord is a refuge. That's a good thing for us to be reminded of. Yeah, the enemy is many, but the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He's a shield around him. So they might be many, but the Lord's refuge is unassailable. He's David's refuge. He's David's greatest resource. Right in the midst of this rebellion, as he's fleeing, he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. It might might cost him his crown, might cost him his kingdom, might cost him his life. And what does he say? My greatest resource is not any of those things. What What is his greatest resource? That the Lord is his glory. His name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's a glory that cannot be taken away. Absalom can't touch that. And David is secure knowing that the Lord is his glory. The Lord is his greatest resource. Um, And with the Lord, he has the promise of restoration. The Lord is the lifter of his head. We have that picture of David barefoot and weeping with his head covered, going up the Mount of Olives. And what does he recall in that moment? The Lord is the lifter of my head. It's a wonderfully intimate picture of God sort of putting his hand under your chin and lifting it up out of despair. That's what David knows about his God. That's what he knows about this covenant Lord that he calls on. It's important that he uses the name of the Lord. Whenever we see Lord in all capital letters, that's God's special name that he reveals to his people. Yahweh, the Lord. And what a a wonderful reminder that is just for David to say, but you, O Lord, because it's the covenant Lord who's made promises to his people that he'll show steadfast love to them and will not revoke it. And he's made particular covenant promises to his king, to David. The wonderful promise that's summarized for us in Psalm 2. When a king is crowned, what is God saying over him? You are my son, today I have begotten you. David can call to mind those wonderful covenant promises from his God. And know that he's his refuge and his resource and his hope of restoration. And so when David cries out to the Lord, he knows that he will answer. Uh, That's what's summarized for us in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord. 
In, in Hebrew, it really comes across, my voice called out to the Lord. I think his voice is being set against the voice of those who said to him, there is no help for you from God. He's saying, no, now my voice calls out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. Or we should hear echoes of that holy hill from Psalm 2, that the Lord has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. We said that was the place where David made his name to reign, where God made his king to dwell. But that's also where God made his throne to dwell. God wanted his people to think of him and the Ark of the Covenant as the place where God made his dwelling place. And they were to think of God being enthroned above the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that comes into this story because when David was fleeing the city, the priest came out with the Ark of the Covenant. And they were saying, if the king goes, then the ark goes with you. And he said, no, take it back. Um, the Lord has not set it to move out, and if I come back and see it, that will be a blessing to me from the Lord. But even as he flees and he leaves that, that, that symbol of God's presence behind, he knows that God is still there. And that's where he calls. And it's a reminder that our God is a king who's high and lifted up. And that even David as king called out to a greater king for help. Called out to the one who dwells enthroned above the cherubim for help in his midst of trouble. And could be filled with confidence that the Lord hears his people when they call. That as God had promised to be a father to him, he would hear his son when he called. And David is so sure he does something that might sound remarkable given the circumstances. He lays down and sleeps. He lays down and sleeps. I think most of us in this situation would not have been able to sleep. Would have thought, I can't go to sleep. I've got to be on watch. Maybe particularly if we're a man of war like David. You know, I'm, I'm going to sit here at condition zero. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm, I'm going to stay on guard here for if they're coming for my life. But he doesn't do that. He says, I laid down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Um, he does something that's so remarkable. Calvin said he slept soundly in the midst of many deaths, as if he were beyond the reach of all danger. But that's how he felt, having called out to God, who he knew would protect him. He said, I am beyond the reach of all danger. And the proof is, I laid down, I slept, and I woke again. Why did I rise up to see another day? It's because the Lord sustained me. It's something sometimes we take for granted when we wake up in the morning. That's why sometimes it can be good to be reminded that this is a good morning prayer to pray, that God has protected us. If we look in our forms and prayers book, there's a, a prayer in there for the morning. And it's interesting how that prayer begins. Merciful God, thank you for keeping watch over us last night. As we face a new day, may we fix our eyes on Christ, our only hope. It's a reminder to us that yesterday's sustaining grace should lead to today's hope. That the God who sustained me through the night and kept me to this morning, will keep me through this day. Will continue to watch over me. 
Because this isn't a bad dream that David wakes up from and it's over, right? He doesn't wake up and say, oh, that was horrible, but I'm still, in, I'm still king and I'm still in my nice cushy bed and everything's right in the kingdom. No, he wakes up and things are worse, right? Look at, look at verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's the language of an army encamped. He wakes up and it's as if he says, and I look out and there's thousands encamped around me. And what does he say? I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Because the Lord who sustained me through the night will sustain me through the day. He's a shield about me. He's my glory and the lifter of my head. And so what does David do? Well, in his certain hope, he calls out to, the, to God in prayer. And it's a confident prayer. Um, what is his prayer in verse 7? Arise, O Lord. Um, arise, O Lord. That is the ancient battle cry of God's people. If you know, want to know what, what God's people call out when they go to war, that's what they call out. Arise, O Lord. It's a reminder of what was said every time the Ark of the Covenant set out in the wilderness. We read that in Numbers 10.35. What did they always say? Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. That, that was the prayer. And God's people have a certainty that God always fights for them. Psalm 68 turns that prayer into a certainty. We read in Psalm 68, verses 1 and 2, God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Um, It's no wonder that this was a favorite psalm of the martyrs uh, during the time of the Reformation, to sing that psalm. God shall arise, and his enemies will be scattered. Um, This is the sure prayer of David, that that God goes to war for him, uh, that God goes to war for his king and for his people. And he shows that trust because he trusts in those covenant promises that God had made. That's one of the key covenant promises that came to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. It's a wonderful reminder that the Lord is against those who are against his people. It's that wonderful sentiment that's conveyed in Zechariah 2.8. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. David is filled with confidence, you see, to know that the Lord loves him. The Lord has set his covenant love on him as his king. And the Lord does not betray that love. The Lord does not go back on that promise. That's a wonderful reminder to us that as Absalom was against him and he had the best counselor, what he didn't have was God with him. And the fact that, was God, that God was against him ruined everything. 
Because when Absalom said, what should I do to go get my father? Ahithophel gave him good advice. Go right now and kill them before they can set up. Because all of his guys are serious soldiers. Right? They're, they're all special operations guys. You don't want them set up. You don't want to fight them on their own turf. Go right now and get them before they're ready for you. And David's friend Hushai, the archite, came in and said, no, 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 that's not what you want to do. They are deadly. I mean, you don't want to go fight them sort of half-cocked. Get all your guys together, and when you're all together, then go and attack. And what was he trying to do? He was trying to buy David time. He was trying to poison the counsel of Absalom in David's defense. And it worked. He's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I better get all my guys together. And meanwhile, all David's guys are setting up. And David escapes safely. And what's the key to this whole story? Well, it's 2 Samuel 17, 14. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is why David can have such confidence. All these people want to bring harm on him, but God wants to bring harm on Absalom. Right? Absalom has a lot bigger problems than David has. David knows that the Lord is for him. And this rebellion is brought to a crashing halt. Absalom tries to come out against David. Absalom's riding his mule and he rides by a tree and gets caught in it by his hair. And the mule rides out from under him and he's just hanging there by his hair. Until Joab comes and kills him. The commander of David's army. And then Absalom's men think that it's a good idea to go in the forest and try to fight all of David's special operators in the forest. And what ends up happening? 20,000 of them get killed. And more of them die in the terrain than are killed by David's people. Why? The Lord is fighting for David. The creation kills more of Absalom's soldiers than David's servants do. It's a reminder that the Lord fights for those who were his. Um, the Lord had not abandoned David. They said there is no salvation for him. His prayer is, save me, O oh my God. And it's his prayer that's answered. It's his confidence in God's promise that he'll lead to victory. And it's a kind of ignominious end, isn't it? To be caught in a tree by your hair and just hang there until someone walks by and kills you. That's God striking Absalom in the cheek. That's smiting his cheek. That, that's what Psalms talk about. Psalm 3 talks about. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. That's an insulting blow. That's just to slap somebody. And God did that. He, he, it was an insulting way for Absalom to die. And then God struck the destroying blow and shattered his teeth. This is the picture, right? Again, it's Psalm 2 all over again. God laughs at the wicked and then he destroys them. He, he holds them in derision and then he destroys them. God is not troubled by any of this. God's king is not really troubled by any of this. And why? Because God is for his people. Um, it, it always gets brought to nothing in the end. Right? How, how did all that torment of Jesus work out for his enemies? Right? They reviled him. Oh, you serve God. Let God save you. 
He did. He raised from the dead. And he made this Jesus who they crucified, Lord and Christ, and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth, gave him the name that's above every name, that his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is king to the praise of his Father. Right? This doesn't work. You can't oppose God's people and prevail. That's good news for God's people. Right? That's good news for the church. That God is for us. And because he's for us, we will triumph. That whatever the world says and however many of the enemies are and however malevolent they are against God's people, God's word is true that he loves us. That he cares for us. That he will shield us. And he will smite and shatter his enemies and the wicked. And inevitably he will save his people. That's where the psalm ends in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is where it always ends for God's people. Salvation and blessing. God's people can't forget that. What God has been for his people, he will always be for his people. And you can see why this became a psalm for morning worship. Because every day we get up and we're reminded of the difficulties that face us in life. The difficulties that surround us in the world. And we're to call to mind the protection of the Lord that's brought us and his people thus far. And the protection of the Lord that is continuing. That God will continue to shield us all the days of our life. And will eventually come to save us from all of our enemies. That's the comfort. That God not only shields us, but eventually saves us. Saves us from all of our enemies and brings us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Uh, That's the glorious comfort that we read of in Heidelberg Catechism, question 52. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? That in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. This life is filled with serious distress. We don't downplay that as Christians. But because of who God is, and particularly who God is for us in Christ, we should live this life with a certain hope. And we should pray with a confident prayer. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the New Testament prayer of the ancient battle cry. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that that should be our prayer this morning and every morning until that great day dawns when the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in His wings and brings that bright, new, and glorious day in which there are no enemies and there is no more distress and all things are new. Um, All who trust in Him will safely see that day and rejoice. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for David's faith and ultimately the picture it gives us of our Lord Jesus Christ.
We thank you that you have heard the cry of your people that Jesus has arisen, that he has gone forth to war on our behalf and died in the cause of his people. That he died that he might raise us up, that he is our shield and our glory and the lifter of our heads. We pray, Lord, that we might live in certain hope of his protection, that he will intervene on our behalf against our enemies, and that he is coming in glory soon to bring an end to all things and to bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. We thank you for his salvation. We thank you for the blessing of being his people. Might that fill us with confidence. May we begin every morning with thanksgiving for your sustaining grace, for bringing us thus far, and that might fuel our certainty that you will carry us through safely to glory. Help us always to praise your wonderful name for the great gift that you've given us, salvation in Christ and the blessing upon your people. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.